We can take your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of John this morning, John chapter 4. Just a word of thank you. Uh, like I say, appreciate being appreciated, um, but I do feel privileged and honored and love what I do and have been amazed what the Lord has done over the years. And, you know, like all of us, you can look back and just see the different things, whether in families, and um, I think I've said this before, but I don't know why, maybe it's everyone's iPhone, but I get sent the pictures usually Saturday or Sunday morning of my kids and three, four, five years old. And it's amazing how much has changed. And, um, and obviously things change and things grow, but just thankful for all that the Lord has done, all the Lord has provided, and that I get to do what I get to do. And so I don't know who made it an appreciation month. And everyone has a month, I guess, pastors get October. Um, but I know you guys uh, appreciate I feel appreciated all, all, the, all year round. Uh, so thank you for that. This morning we're going to continue in John chapter 4, but I want to open with a question. It's another long, uh, we're going verses 1 through 42, I see as a as a whole. And so I think keeping that in mind, and we're going to keep 42 very much in mind this morning as well. But opening with this question, um, does geography matter? Does land matter? And I'm sure if we're talking about geography and land that you don't own— it may not matter that much to you. But if someone came into your property or to your land or tried to take something from you, you might feel a little differently, right? All of a sudden, the American inside with personal property and you go, that's mine. You can't just come in and take that from me, right? You start to have that understanding. Obviously, you have the geopolitical world of nations, right? Land matters. People are trying to claim things. Even now, whether it be the oceans or space, right? People want ownership of those minerals, those rights on the moon. So there's a sense in which, of course, geography matters, land matters. Even thinking this last couple weeks and thinking of this kind of theologically and biblically, I've had a lot of different questions. We just went through the book of Revelation and you see another attack, which isn't necessarily it at all. It's as old as time is really with the Middle East of Hamas's attack on Israel. But what does this mean and how should we view Israel? Because we obviously are the church and we understand there is a, a distinction between even when we talk about a remnant of Israel and the church. And so I think when I think about this question of geography, does it matter? The answer, of course, is yes and no. Of course it matters to human beings living on earth. Of course it matters when we talk about biblical uh, eschatology and understanding what Christ is coming back to do. I think he's going to come back and we did this in Revelation and he is going to reign from a literal throne, David's throne from Jerusalem in real time and, and in real space. And so it matters. I think the fact that you think of just the, the current situation, um, this, I think we talk about the nation of Israel as a state now. I think they have a right to defend themselves. They were attacked. I think they have a right to exist. I even think you see a special place in Scripture even now for them. You look at Romans chapter 11, and they, all Israel will be saved. And you understand that the remnant, even looking in Revelation, the, the 144,000 and the role that they're going to play in the end times. And so there is a priority in Scripture even that it goes first to the Jew, right? And then to the Greek. Now, is it to say they aren't necessarily saved now? It's not the remnant now? And so I think you have to keep that in perspective. We don't know what the timeline is. And so people ask about what does this mean? I go, I don't know. I just know we're one day closer to the return of Christ. That's, that's what I know sitting over here in little old Nebraska. But I do think it's a reminder of when we live in a world— that is so off theological. And by that I mean 
America is so kind of agnostic. People say they believe in God, but it doesn't really change the way they live. Where they worship doesn't really matter that much, whether they go to church or not. They might say they're Christians even, or they might say they believe in God, but there's really no evidence that it changes the way that they live. So it can be hard for us to get into a place where these things really matter, and they might motivate somebody to do certain things. And that's where it's like hard for, on the political stage, anyone to understand what's going on between, say, a uh, militant group like Hamas, that they're actually theologically motivated, right? We've seen it for a number of years now with jihad, a, a holy war. It's, it's theologically driven and a government in a world that wants to suppress theology and suppress talk of God, then how do you understand how those people are working? But it's no surprise to those of us who understand scripture, even looking at conflict in the Middle East, and you go all the way back to Abraham and Isaac and, and Ishmael, and you understand that the conflict is, is that old. But at the same time, we try to put ourselves in going, there is a world where theology matters and theology does matter. And from that area, there's a fight over geography. And even here, you're going to see within Jews, Samaritans, there's a fight over where should we worship? Where should they worship in that time? And so I think it's just important to understand all this because it's in that context that we get this idea of you can only worship on Mount Gerizim. You can only worship on in, or in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. And it's a little bit of work to go, okay, you got to understand they live in a different world than maybe you and I live in. And there's reasons for that. And even one of those big reasons is Jesus came as a Christian. And we understand that he's going to state some things about the nature of worship that radically change our expectations of that. And so in that way, Jeremy, yes, it does matter. But from a church perspective, we're not a political entity and it doesn't matter for us in the same way. Our fight is not going to be against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6, but it's against, right, principalities and powers, rulers of the spiritual forces of evil, it says in Ephesians 6. So we have a different battle going on. And it's interesting because not only does he deal with worship here in spirit and truth, but he also, I think, deals with the notion which is going to be a precursor for evangelism and the great commission that comes forward. All that is to say, we're still in this gospel of John purpose that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And really, we had con consistent things of the natural discussion being moved to spiritual discussion. Nicodemus in chapter 3, that you must be born again. And of course, the issue is we're fleshly and we've been born once. And Nicodemus going, well, how can we be born again? And Jesus saying, no, you need a birth that is from above, which is a spiritual birth. And then the woman at the well, which we introduced last week, and the same issue there is she wants to know where she can get water that she'll never thirst again. And Jesus is saying, well, I'm not talking about physical water, but living water, which is representative. We didn't went through that last week, but in the Old Testament of the spirit that is giving consistent, ever giving life. You need to be born of the spirit, living water, and you will never thirst that is spiritually ever again. You're going to be able to worship, as we'll see, in this spirit and in truth. So we need something that comes from outside. In John chapter 3, it's the heavenly, from the heavens. We also need something that is not fleshly, but something that is spiritual. Born again, living water. I hear this 
morning we'll see we need to worship in spirit and in truth. But it's all driving to who Jesus is. And so we'll frame it that way because I think that's the major point of this bigger section that Jesus is Savior, particularly of the world. It's only one of two times John's going to use it again in 1 John. And I don't think it's an accident. He uses it here in the context of this woman that they encounter, the Samaritan woman, that Jesus is Savior of that woman, of the Samaritans and the Jews. And of course, by extension, to the Gentiles. That's you and me. And so this morning we're going to see two reasons from these verses that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Number one, we're going to see that he is the Savior of the world. Why? Because it's going to be argued here that worship is not restricted to geography. Worship is not restricted to geography. He's going to say there is a time coming when it's not going to matter about Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. He kind of sidesteps. We'll see the discussion here. So let's catch ourselves up as we look at kind of verses 1 through 18. We saw the setting in verses 1 through 6 that Jesus has to go through Samaria. And of course, he could have gone around. It's faster to go through Samaria. But even more than that, he's got a divine appointment with this woman. The disciples go into town. They're going to buy food. And of course, that's going to be a context because they're going to come back. And that's going to provide a lesson for them about another physical means. That is bread. And Jesus is going to use that to teach a lesson. But it's this whole context of Jesus asking her for a drink, her being surprised that a Jewish man, that a teacher would even interact with her. And more than that, share the utensils, probably the idea of verse 9. How do you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, being a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That is to say, not so much they have no interaction, but they are definitely not going to share drinking utensils. They're not going to share a cup. And Jesus says... If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, and I think that gift is talking about eternal life, give me a drink. If you knew there's the Son of God you were talking to, you would have asked him, and we would have given you living water. And that contrast to, I would say, just in the simplistic way of dead water. But in the most natural way, living water is a spring that gives life that's clear, that's pure. But he's talking about a spiritual truth, which of course she's not quite picking up on here. But by the end, when he starts to tell her about her own life. Why don't you bring your husband? And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You have five. In fact, the one you're living with now is not your husband. So he says, you've said the truth, but also that's revealed that he is something more than just the average man you might run into. And so she says in verse 19, and this kind of turns us to the next part of our text this morning. In verse 19, sir, I see that you are a prophet. And it's hard to know here if this is, of course, truncated, a, a shortened version of the whole interaction. And maybe she changes the subject because she doesn't want to talk about her sin anymore. Some commentators suggest that. Maybe because she recognizes you seem to be unique and I have theological questions. And I can understand that. I get that a lot. It's people find out I'm a pastor and the theological question they have, they immediately ask me. You're going, well, you seem to be the guy who should know the answer to this. So let me go ahead and ask you the question that's, theological question that's burning. And that might be what's on her mind here as well. I'm not sure. But it is interesting to note that for the Samaritans who only affirmed the first five books of the Bible, they affirmed that Moses was a prophet and they said he was the last prophet. In Deuteronomy 18, 18 says there'll be another prophet like Moses. And they believe that next prophet would be the Messiah. So it is interesting that she references, and maybe this is a hint towards, are you more 
than just this Jew sitting here asking me for water, but maybe you're a prophet and of course it will move there that he's going to confirm, yes, I am. And so the question here that she says, let me ask you, if you're a prophet, you're a man of God, you're a theologian, I have a theological question for you. And that's in verse 20, our fathers worshiped. And so even that unity, right? Our fathers, she knows that she's part Jew, part Gentile. And that um, we'll get into this with Mount Gerizim, but they worship there because they can't prove their lineage. They're not accepted down South at Jerusalem. Since the Babylonian exile, they've intermarried. But yet they both go back to say, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So our fathers, Abraham, and we even have that. We have multiple places in Isaiah, uh, Genesis on this mount that Abraham worshipped, that Isaac worshipped, or Jacob worshipped, and we worshiped, they worshipped on this mountain. I'm sure this is the argument she's heard since she was little and said, hey, they worshipped here. What do you have a problem with us worshipping? If it's good enough for Abraham, it's good enough for Jacob, it's good enough for us, isn't it? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you people, which I think is that phrase of saying Jews, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And so she wants to get in this debate. Why don't you riddle me this? Let's have this discussion. The context of that was that debate of where should you worship? And of course, the Samaritans don't affirm any of the prophets, which is where you get more of the historical books of King David, going to Jerusalem, and then of course Solomon building the temple where God says that's the place where they're going to build a place for me to worship. They both affirm Deuteronomy 12.5 that you shall seek Yahweh at the place which Yahweh your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling and there you shall come. Well, they affirm the rest of the scripture and therefore they understand it to be Jerusalem. And so he's going to interact with that slightly, but he's going to not get drawn into this debate or this battle. And he's going to go to the heart, to the crux of the issue, which is worship. You're kind of asking about where, and I'm just going to sit down on this idea of worship. And so he says to her in verse 21, woman, believe me. Trust me. I don't know if it's, he's saying believe in me. I don't think that's quite the, probably there. He's just saying, trust what I'm about to say to you. Understand this truth. An hour is coming when neither an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So he's saying, I understand how it is right now. And he's going to sidestep and go, something's changed. Why? Because he's here. And it's coming and it's now here where you're not going to worship whether it's Mount Gerizim or it's the Temple Mount. It's going to be different. And you're going to worship the Father somewhere else. And even that's interesting, kind of using that language of Father. You worship what you do not know, verse 22. We worship what we know. And he's talking about the Jewish people. Why? Because you worship what you don't understand because you don't affirm the scriptures. We affirm the scriptures. They got that part down. You could say they could worship in truth. But they're going to need more than simply truth. They're going to need spirit and truth. An hour's coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So God's looking, seeking, as it were, those who are acceptable. And the ones who are acceptable worshipers worship in both spirit 
and in truth. And the woman, it says to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will declare all things to us. And really the only time in this gospel, Jesus affirms to this woman, probably because it's safe in the sense that it's not going to cause the, the rioting too early. And he says, powerfully, I speak to you, am he. I who speak to you, am he. That is, I'm the one. I am the Messiah. And we're going to see that's going to equal action on her part. And she's going to act. But this issue of spirit, truth, worship. We want to understand it because I think everyone here goes, well, if that's what's acceptable to God, then I got to know what that is. And I want that to be true of me. Salvation, it said, came from the Jews. That is, all the way back to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, it was through him the families of the earth will be blessed. And so that's true. And as we're talking about history, even now, I do think there's a future place for Israel as well. But as of right now, there's coming an age. He's looking forward to, I think, the age that we're in, the era, this, say, dispensation, where you will worship directly in spirit and in truth. He's already foretold in John chapter 2, what? That temple, it's going down. The temple will be destroyed. Going back to chapter 2. And they make fun of him. Chapter 2, verse 20. They say, it took 46 years to build this sanctuary. You will raise it up in three days? But he wasn't just talking about the temple. He's talking about the sanctuary of his body, verse 21. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he said. And they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. That is, there is going to be a different way to approach God. There's a mediator. And it's going to be Christ fully God and fully man. You can approach God through him. You don't need the temple in the same way that when Christ is crucified, the, the curtain is torn in two. The holy is holies. You can approach him. Why? Because, and it goes back to chapter three, you have been born again. He's given you a new nature of which can approach because he has paid and dealt with your sin. But this idea of spirit and truth, what is he talking about? I think 24 is probably the best insight, at least from the text here. An hour is coming in verse 23 when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And then it says in 24, God is spirit. Because we've obviously been talking at least in reference of living water. The reference to living water, especially later in John, is explicitly the Holy Spirit. Born again. Spirits like the wind. But I don't think here he's talking about the Holy Spirit. I think he's talking about the nature here that God is spirit. And mainly here, it's probably the contrast that God is not fleshly. So go back to chapter three, right? He's spiritual. He's not of this world. And you need something outside of this world. You need, this is probably talking the human spirit. You need to be born again is probably the language here in that sense, which of course is going to take the Holy Spirit. But that's nature that God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You're going to have to have an ability in your spirit, your soul, as it were, needs to be remade, regeneration, that you might worship him. God's spiritual. You need to worship him in this way. It's not just going to be you marching up and offering a sacrifice or doing external things, but it has to be internal, holistic as well. 
The issue here for the woman at the well is the same issue as John the Baptist or the same issue as uh, Nicodemus. Well, how can I do that? If I'm flesh, been born, how can I do that? Well, again, you must be born from above to worship God who is from above. And the only way that's going to happen is for you to bow the knee to the one who is from above, which is going to be believing in Jesus and what he has done, his person and his work. I imagine the woman's a little confused and that's why in 25, why just, all I know is she's saying, someone's coming who's going to sort it out. And Jesus says, that's me. I am the long-awaited Messiah who's coming to sort all of this out. What can you take away from this? I think that worship is not restricted to geography, which is chapter 2, which is not the temple. But also it's not going to be Mount Gerizim. It's not a place. It is going to be a person. That is true. And the takeaway, I think, is that number one, that true worship is spiritual can only happen if you have the kind of spirit that can truly worship God. Which goes back to being born again. And that, secondly, true worship is towards the true God, which is to say, spirit and truth. To go back to verse 22, you worship what you do not know. That is, there is a wrong way to worship. The Jews have the truth side right, I think, is kind of the reference here. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. They have it right. But you're going to need to, and God wants, which is someone to worship in spirit and in truth coming forward. It's a worship God based on truth, based on who he is. That is affirming not just that God exists, not that there was a Jesus, not just that he lived historically, but that you believe truly who he is. That is, you believe chapter one, he was God. He was with God in the beginning you have to affirm those truths. It's a tough reality in our pluralistic world where people don't like Acts 4.12 that there's no salvation. There's salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This exclusive nature that the scriptures are claiming to say not that Jesus is a way but he is the way. You have to affirm that truth to be able to worship in spirit and in truth. And as well, you see this language of father, our fathers, verse 20, verse 21. You'll worship the father where? Not in Gerizim, not in geography, not in Jerusalem, but you will worship what? The father, which takes you all the way back, I think, to chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And just note this, verse 13 who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is, they are born again of something different. The regeneration of the Spirit. How is that happening? Well, the Word became flesh, which he then tells you everything about the Word that became flesh, the rest of the Gospel of John. We pray our Father who is in heaven. We're just used to that language, but again, this is radical language to say you can say who you is perfect and holy and completely other is Father. You can only do that if you have a right relationship, which only is going to come if you worship in both spirit and in truth. That's the acceptable 
worship. And Jesus is saying he is the savior of the world, not just the Jews, not just Jerusalem. It's coming through the Jews, but the Samaritans as well. And hey, it's not Gerizim or Jerusalem. You're both going to be wrong in a moment. It's going to be through Christ and Christ alone. So there's no worship apart from Christ himself. But when he is received, he is believed, you become a child of God. There is going to be no limit to who he saves. Why? I think because evangelism is not limited. And I use evangelism, right? That you're taking the gospel, you are sharing it, and someone is believing your testimony, your witness. That's exactly what we see in verse 27 going forward. Worship's not restricted to geography, but also Jesus is the savior of the world because evangelism is not limited. He doesn't just come to the Jews. There's a priority there, even in the New Testament. There's a priority of Paul. He's going to the synagogues, but it doesn't stay there. It's not limited. It goes to the ends of the earth. And you see a little picture of that here in verse 27 through verse 38. Now, this is one of those structural things that I think is so helpful because if you're reading carefully, what happens here is you have a a beginning and an end with something in the middle that doesn't make a lot of sense. And this is a way of communicating truth, a way of explaining. I think you have to understand the middle, which seems a little bit like it doesn't belong here. It's explained by the beginning and the end. What you have at the beginning here is the woman in verse 27, who I guess the disciples come back while she is still there. And they're marveling that he's speaking with a woman. I think that's just to, to their day and understanding that wouldn't be something common. And Jesus doesn't care at their cultural practices. I mean, you go all the way back to the beginning. You go back to Adam and Eve and the issues between men and women and issues with roles and, and all those things. But again, Jesus is treating her the way that she should be treated, made in the image of God. So that is kind of an interesting thing. I think some people, in one way you can make too much of it, but then again, this is a massive statement. He's willing to speak with her again. It's not just to all men, it's not just all Jews, but men and women to the whole world, I think is what I gather from this. They're shocked. No one said, which this is probably wise. I'm surprised Peter didn't say something, right? No one was going to say, why do you, what do you seek or why are you speaking with her? But the woman left her water jar, went into the city and said to the men there, come see a man who told me all things that I have done. Is this not the Christ? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. And then we're going to have another, <coughs> excuse me, interaction with Jesus before you get to verse 39. And then you're going to kind of pick up the story again. And this happens multiple times, so I think it's just worth noting in Scripture. And then verse 39, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who bore witness. Witness is going to be really important here. He told me all the things that I've done. Say so it's, in that way, it's, it's a miracle. She demonstrates, she's, this guy knew things he shouldn't know. And so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with him. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly the savior of the world. And what I want you to see there is that verse 27 all the way down to verse 30, that story is completed in verse 39. 
And you won't understand why the rest is here unless you understand what is he trying to communicate about the evangelism, the belief of the Samaritans. And so I think that gives the context to what he means by this conversation of bread, a purpose of sustenance, and what it means. That he talks about the harvest being plentiful. It has to do with what's going on on the outside here of the Samaritans coming to faith because of the witness of the woman that they've heard their testimony and then they've come and seen for themselves and they have believed. It demonstrates he's the savior of the world and it is not limited. You see the woman has a testimony. She has a witness. We're going to see this structure here where Jesus is then in the midst of that sandwiched in the middle is going to be this lesson where you're going to get see physical versus spiritual. This discussion of being born again, and we're not talking just about being born, but being born again above, not just water that quenches thirst, but spiritual living water that can quench eternal thirst. And this bread, although Jesus other places is the bread of life, his point here is to say he's motivated by something different than the disciples. It's not just a physical priority of his life, but he's here with a spiritual mission. So verse 31, meanwhile, while all this is kind of going on, he's saying there's a side discussion that Jesus is using to explain and to teach. And so meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus saying, Rabbi, teacher, eat. We went into town, we spent all the time, we got you food and you're not going to eat. Seemingly they left, he was thirsty and he was tired. He asked the woman at the well for a drink and they're going, well, it's been long enough or I don't know how long, but long enough to get to the city to get back to have bought those things. And they're going, you look tired. You look worn. Take a break. Eat. And he takes this moment of, which again, you see Jesus, yes, fully God, but he's fully man. He's tired in his flesh. He is tired, but he has different priority. And he says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Which the disciples, being like Nicodemus, being like the woman at the well, start saying to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? They're not catching on. Jesus is talking about more than physical food. And so he explains and he says to them, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So what is food, right? Food is something you eat that gives you energy to do work. This is something that gives you sustenance. You're saying the reason I'm here, that what fuels me, what motivates me, is doing the will of his father, which of course you see throughout the gospels and to finish his work. It's to say this work, in many ways you think about it, is it started when the word becomes flesh? No, started all the way in the beginning. He is here with a specific purpose to save a people, to be what? The savior of the world. And he's motivated by this to where he's saying, hey, and I think probably in the context here of explaining they were coming to him. I got people coming, I got ministry. And my top priority is not this life, isn't just feeding my flesh, but being faithful to what the Father's will is. And he further illustrates this in verse 35. Do not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Some question over this is a, is this a saying? Is, is this the time of year? I think it's probably just simply a saying the same way you would say. And most of the time you go, okay, if you were to plant, you know, April, May, and four months later, you're going to have something there to harvest in general. It's probably just a general statement of, you understand the way agriculture works. 
You know, you look out and you can tell by that corn whether, at least for me, I can tell it's almost the 4th of July. Why? Because of how tall the corn is, but it's not ready to harvest yet. And everything starts to, it does now, turn brown, you go, okay. I'm guessing there's going to be some combines out there and harvest happening very soon. And so he's saying the same thing that you and I would understand. There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. But he's saying that is the natural thing, right? That's how we see the world. You don't plant Monday and harvest on Friday. It's not the way the world works. The natural way of things is, and the way you recognize it is in four months, you'll plant and then you'll harvest, you'll reap, or excuse me, you'll sow and then you will reap, which is the phrase he's going to use in a moment. And he's saying, you say this. You say it takes four months. Well, behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. And again, I don't know if we have enough evidence to say what time of year it was here, even with that saying. But most suggest that here he's probably saying, look at all of those people from Samaria coming. Obviously, he's not just talking about fields and grain because he's been talking about spiritual things and people and hearts. And he's saying, look out, they're ready to be ministered to. They are white for harvest. In this case, you think about they're ready to believe. And 36, even now he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. Right? Living water, life eternal. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. Like I think this is all teaching. This is all lesson for them to understand. The one who sows, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. I don't know if the analogy is so hard to understand. A little bit of, okay, let's try to identify who, who are the ones doing this? Who are the reapers? Who are the sowers? And you have suggestions of, prophets of old. They laid the groundwork, you could say. And now Jesus is here and they're going to reap a harvest. Um, you could say, maybe some have suggested John the Baptist. That he's out there. He's been sowing. And you get to reap all the people that have, are ready to come and receive Jesus. So maybe at least for sure, I think I'm probably most confident that in the immediate context here, that this is Jesus and the woman, particularly the woman, who go gives a witness, right? And she goes out in that sense, the, if the, think of, not to cross too many pictures, but the word being the seed, the parable of the sower. She goes out and she gives her witness to all these people. She sows, and guess what? You guys get to come and do ministry and reap the harvest. And I'm going to send you to reap that which you have not labored. You guys don't know what's going on. You think we're talking about bread. You're hungry. But he says, I'm going to send you, and this is probably him also saying, this is a small microcosm of what will happen. Matthew 28, the book of Acts. That you're going to be sent out and you are going to reap what is being harvested or what is been sown in all these places. So teaching them this lesson, thinking of, a small glimpse of a coming age and the coming commission to go into all nations, make disciples, teaching and baptizing. It's probably a good lesson for them to, to never underestimate what God is doing. I think there's something in that with verse 35 that this is the natural way, four months. And if Jesus wants to 
sow and reap in one hour, he can do that. What's impossible with man is possible with God. And in that way, I think they're learning. And I think in turn, we should learn that you don't, un- don't underestimate what God can do. He's not constrained by the natural. Even this, you think, here's the disciples. And I think their interaction with the woman at the well is probably not just the cultural side of Samaritans and Jews. They don't mention she's a Samaritan woman. They, they mention she's a woman. What's the likelihood? How natural would it be for a woman to come in and give a testimony to this town and for the town to believe her and to come out and say, we must meet him as well. The town that, these are small towns. This is in Omaha, small town. They know her. They know probably her business. It's kind of supernatural, is it not? But that's the kind of God that God is, that he can harvest from this moment where you think, well, they got to know more. They got to have more information. Maybe they're not the right kind of person. You think maybe this person looks like someone who wouldn't believe. doesn't matter. Don't underestimate what God can do. Don't underestimate gospel conversations. You just don't know if today is the day you'll reap the harvest. You don't know what's been going on in someone else's life. You, you might be the person who jumped on the airplane who's talking with them, but their mother, their father, their Sunday school teacher 20 years ago had a conversation with them where they sowed seeds. You might be the one who gets to reap the harvest. And it's also another reminder for those of us here that as you minister to people, you may not get to bear and see fruit, but you're faithful and sowing the seed of the word in their lives and just trust the Lord that he'll do what he wants when he wants. And guess what? One day, as people gather fruit, you could say for life eternal, he who sows and he who reaps, you're going to rejoice together. I don't know if that's a direct lesson in, even in churches, but I see lots of people who, you know, get saved or grow spiritually here and then work moves them and those things. And you can be thankful. They go and they serve another church that's praise the Lord. You just give what the Lord has given and you're faithful to it, knowing that he can and will do. This lesson, though, is about, I think, all of these Samaritans, verse 39, who at least immediately, who are going to believe in him. Because, verse 39, of the word of the woman who bore witness. That's miraculous in and of itself. They simply heard, he knew my business. He knew about my life. And so whatever happens, they get there and they see him, they meet him, they interact with him. Maybe he does other things that demonstrate his deity. And they say, it's no longer, verse 42, what you've said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves— even then, right? Not even saying we saw something miraculous. Just hearing. They've heard. And they know that he, this is the one who is truly the savior of the world. Samaritans embracing a Jewish rabbi. Probably not what they thought they would do that day. It goes both ways for them in that culture. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. Samaritans didn't like the Jews. And here they are embracing a Jew because they believe their Messiah they're looking for is this same Messiah. And so they believe. And so you see worship. It's no longer going to be simply this mountain or that mountain. Evangelism is not going to be limited to simply to the Jew, but to the Samaritan and to the ends of the earth. 
over and over again, this lesson of Jesus being this kind of savior is seen, which is good for you and I. And I think why John emphasizes is this gospel is written to Gentiles and say, hey, it's, this might feel like, this seems like this Jewish thing. This seems like this Middle East. No, this isn't just for them. It came from them, but it is to the world. I really hope as you look and you see these things and you see how glorious this truth is. The privilege to worship in spirit and truth because that day Jesus say is coming and I think has come in the church. That is to say, it doesn't matter if it's a gym. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, a pretty building or a metal building or outside with no tent. You can worship there in spirit and in truth. You look at the world that we live in, conflict, chaos. It's a good reminder here that within that conflict, that chaos, because here's pretty big conflict between the Jews and Samaritans of that time. There's still massive conflict in our own little areas and not to say less of the world. But it's a reminder that you have this truth that is unifying to say Nicodemus, rich, powerful, educated, woman at the well, not Jewish, probably not educated, not wealthy. Jesus is the savior of both. And yes, we understand Jesus is coming back and he's going to make all things right. Yes, we saw in Revelation over and over again, he will come back and he will flex his muscles, as it were. He's going to come back in judgment. No one will stand in his way, but that's not the role of the church. That's his role. Vengeance is the Lord. The way of the church is we're fighting this spiritual battle, preaching this truth, this gospel, and getting to take part in this harvest now. And lest we be disobedient, lest we not be ones taking part in that harvest, this is a good reminder of trust the Lord, share the gospel, spread the seed, and you'll be amazed at what God can do. Because what you expect, which I think the human expectation four months is kind of the analogy here, or whatever you might expect, God will do above and beyond that immensely. Let's pray. Father, we do know and we do long, even as Revelation ends with come Lord, come. That there is a reality of there is only one way to be right with you, only one way to salvation, only under one name, Jesus, where one can be saved, that is to be reconciled to you, where their sin is taken from them. Lord, as you see over and over again, these ones here interact with your son. And we see throughout the gospels, throughout John, those who do not believe. But we do see even here, surprisingly, those who are counted among those who do believe. And let us not underestimate, Lord, as we go out, Lord, that we might think, of individuals of anything less than sinners in need of a savior. Uh, may we not be the ones who judge whether they are ripe and ready to be harvested, but trust that if you choose in that moment, in that hour, that you may seek and see your harvest where you will regenerate hearts. So encourage us with that truth and uh, just even be reminding of your 
sovereign power over all of it. Let's pray now that we would be reminded of the privilege that we have, that we can come to you boldly because of Christ, and that we can worship both in spirit and in truth. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen.